0: I have a thought experiment for you. Can you imagine if there were doctors that were fiduciary doctors and non-fiduciary doctors where like you had to go in and wonder if they were doing what was best for you? Like that doesn't exist. And the reason why is because every doctor has to take an oath saying that they're gonna, you know, do what's best for their patient. These ideas of beneficence and autonomy and in the financial industry, that is not required.
1: This is Indebted, South Carolina Public Radio's deep dive into the ecosystem of debt in the Palmetto State. I'm Scott Morgan. In this episode, a look at the sophisticated, overcomplicated ways people with assets can lose them. I'd like you to think of this episode as a bit of a departure, because I want to challenge your empathy. See, there's something everyone you're going to hear from in this round has that most people throughout this podcast don't options. These are people with assets and homes, good credit, and successful businesses, exactly the kinds of people we turn our backs on when we hear they're in financial trouble. But I want you to keep something in mind. People who have a lot have a lot to lose. And nothing brings predators to a froth quite like prey with a lot of meat on its bones. Financial predators can smell the newly well-off before the ink even dries on their first checks. And very few professions paint such a bullseye for those entering
2: it as medicine. When we graduate from med school, we all take this Hippocratic Oath. But what you need to understand is that when you get out in the world, there's no Hippocratic Oath for the businessman.
1: This is Dick McCoy. Full disclosure, Dick and his wife Jan are donors to the ETV endowment, which is largely what makes this podcast even possible. But they're also both retired pediatricians who live in Rock Hill. And Dick's right. People in the business world, and that includes insurance salesmen and financial advisors, do not take an oath to first do no harm. Now, there is some effort to get a kind of Hippocratic oath for certified fiduciary advisors, but very few of those working as financial advisors are certified fiduciaries. The point Dick is trying to make here is, businesses are not built on the concept of letting you keep your money, especially when the business of that business is money. So there's not always a motivation to put your interest first.
2: You need to understand that these people are wanting to sell you something, but is it something that you really want to buy? And, of course, they recognize that physicians are well compensated, higher income, And so they focus their attention on these young folks who are coming out. They want to be their friend, their financial advisor, and they sell them things that maybe are not in their best interest.
1: Things like insurances, investments, annuities, junk stocks. All sold to what Dick says are people who really want to believe their new financial friends are looking out for them.
2: We do come out with a big target on our chest. And we're we're very vulnerable because we're very trusting. And we just can't believe that someone would take advantage of us.
1: All right, before we get too comfy thinking of new doctors as nothing more than a barrel of wide-eyed fish, we do need to remember that they are actually people. And as people, they're as flawed as anybody else. And as vain. Getting through med school means sacrificing your party-hardy 20s in favor of 30-hour days and 10-day weeks, learning the difference between itis and osis. So what would you do if you worked, 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 while all around you are losing their heads for eight years and you finally get to start your life with a six-figure salary? You think you'd have just maybe a little steam to blow off? Well, pardon my French, but there's someone with a little perspective we need to know about.
0: Denis Diderot is a French philosopher. I don't remember exactly when he existed, but he was basically a philosopher and, and wrote encyclopedias. Boom, baby. Une leçon
1: d'histoire philosophique française. Don't even tell me you saw that coming.
0: In his essay, he, he warns people about the sudden contamination of wealth. This Russian empress purchased all of his encyclopedias, gave him some you know, instantaneous wealth, and uh, also gave him this red you know, scarlet dressing gown, which was nicer than the one that he had. And so when he kind of put it on and had this new you know, onset of money, he all of a sudden felt like someone wearing such a gown would need a better coffee table and a better mantle and a better you know, rug in the, in the living room. Okay, so let's get a little
1: perspective on a perspective. Denis Diderot was a wealthy Enlightenment-age philosopher who wrote a lot of entries in France's groundbreaking Encyclopédie and died just prior to the French Revolution, largely overshadowed by Voltaire. Jimmy Turner, on the other hand, is still very much alive and living in Winston-Salem, up in North Carolina. He's a professor of anesthesiology at Wake Forest University, but like Diderot, Jimmy is a bit of a philosopher himself. He frequently speaks and writes books as the physician-philosopher, Counseling Physicians, new and not so new, how to not succumb to what's become known as the Diderot effect.
0: It's the same phenomenon you see in athletes and actresses and entertainers that you see in physicians when they go from making sixty dollars to $65,000 a year to making $200,000, $500,000 a year. And that sudden jump, that sudden accumulation of wealth uh, in terms of your income is a very unique financial situation that only happens to you know, certain subsets of people. What ends up happening is is that you've put off all of this time delaying your 20s, all of the gratification, missing weddings and funerals and t-ball games and a whole host of other things while you're becoming a doctor. And so when you get done, you are likely wanting to pay off on some of that delayed gratification. You're also likely burned out as 50% of doctors are. And so they try to build a lifestyle that's, you know, is becoming of a physician in, in a search to find happiness or contentment and in some ways to, to kind of meet the external and internal expectations that people have uh, for a physician's life.
1: And that right there is the meaty part of that slow-footed mammal on the Serengeti. The juicy part is how little med school students actually know about money
0: doctors have a very large target on their back from the financial industry because we have a very high income and very, very low financial literacy. And so we are the perfect, you know, gazelle running amongst a bunch of lions. Uh, And so for, for all of those reasons, I very strongly feel that, you know, doctors need to have financial literacy in order to practice medicine because they want to and not because they have to.
1: That lack of financial acumen gets costly fast as new doctors buy into insurance plans they don't need and houses they could fit four families in. Oh, and pay off
0: huge student loans. The last time I looked, it's above two hundred thousand dollars when you graduate medical school. That's the average. I mean, the, like the financial situation for doctors is a bit of a racket, right? So, so no one, no one has problems opening up. Like th- this gets very depressing very quickly. Uh no one has any problem opening up new medical schools, despite the fact that the number of ACGME slots for people that can actually, like, you know, doctors can become residents and actually get trained to become board certified in a specialty—that number is not increased by the same proportion. So you have Every year, more doctors graduating with MD and DO degrees that can't actually graduate from residency because there's not enough spots. But we don't have, an, we don't have any problems handling, handing them $200,000, $400,000 in student loans without guaranteeing them an income that could pay it back, right? And so the average is $200,000, and then you go to residency for three to five, and for some specialties, seven years, it's compounding at 7% interest that $200,000 average turns into three hundred dollars very quickly.
1: Okay, let me just take a moment to make the dynamic of inverse principle really clear, because this is the reason I'm asking you to rethink your empathy. The fewer options you have, the lower your income and credit scores get, the higher the interest is likely to be on any money you borrow to, say, pay for food or utilities. And that's how less wealthy people end up mired in debt. The more options you have, The higher your income and credit scores get, the lower your interest rate is likely to be on any money that you borrow for, say, a mortgage. And that's how wealthier people end up mired in debt. Jimmy?
0: The second you graduate residency and you can show someone your anticipated paycheck that you've now signed a contract on, man, banks will fall all over themselves to lend to you, but they'll lend you money that you can't afford. It's the other way around where they're like, well, we know that you have a relatively secure paycheck. And so, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll lend you you know, a, a very large bank loan. And, oh, and by the way, since you're a doctor, there's 0% down. Now, the problem to that is that you know something like 50% of doctors change jobs in the first three to five years that, of their first job because you know, medicine is broken. Uh, and so for a whole host of reasons, doctors don't typically stay in their jobs. They, we move around a good bit. And so now you gotta come up with eight to 10% of that house's worth in order to sell it. And you didn't put any money down. And you still have your $300,000 in student loans and your you know, $100,000 in auto loans. And you very quickly you know, have five, six, $700,000. Uh, you need to pay for your malpractice tail. I mean, it's, the, the number to, to move becomes, uh, for some people, unmanageable to the extent where a doctor may stay trapped in a job financially because they can't afford to leave.
1: According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, South Carolina licenses about 14,000 physicians, exactly dead center among total physicians per state in the U.S. And in the event that you want to go to med school in South Carolina, a four-year doctor of medicine degree will run you anywhere between $166,000 or so and about three ninety, dollars depending on where you go, and depending on whether you're from here when you enroll. Sometimes I think pirates had the right idea. Get your hands on some loot, sail someplace nice, and bury it in the ground. No paperwork, no contracts, just a little muscle and sweat, and your money stays your money. Long as you remember where you put it, of course. Alas, the days of something as simple as sticking money in the ground for later on are gone. Financial transactions are complicated these days especially when you're trying to leverage your money for something involving contracts. And it doesn't matter what for. There's going to be page after page after page of obtuse paperwork written in a language you probably don't speak. You know what the LIBOR rate is? I do not. But I do know it affects your mortgage rate. Anyway, meet David Maxfield. David's a professor of consumer law at the University of South Carolina. While he says contemporary financial systems have their advantages, chiefly that they allow for upgrades to homes and lifestyles that people never used to have access to. The mechanisms that keep markets moving and people
3: accessing those brand new use are increasingly intricate. The financial products that allow you to do that are phenomenally more sophisticated than they were. Now it's like, well, here's these 65 products and here's like a... You know, an interest-only adjustable arm. And I mean, how many pages do you think that contract would have been back in 1930 when you wanted to buy a house? It'd be like a page or two pages. I'm going to loan you this money and you're going to pay it back, okay? How has that happened? So is it a lot easier to fall into the trap of like, I really need this or I really want this? Sure. Is it much easier to get into trouble trying to come up with the means to do it? Yep. Because the products are fantastically more complicated. Mortgage-backed securities, subprime loans, tranches. It's pretty confusing, right? Does it make you feel bored or stupid? Well, it's supposed to. Wall Street loves to use confusing terms to make you think only they can do what they do. Or even better, for you just to leave them the f*** alone.
1: Thank you dashing Canadian export Ryan Gosling for that line from The Big Short, which if you haven't seen, by the way, I can't recommend enough. Like, seriously good movie. And what a line, right? I mean, who'd have thought cinema could so handsomely sum up why financial
3: contracts are so purposefully dense?
1: But it does. I'm still going to let David break it
3: down for you, though. In car leases, there is something called the Consumer Leasing Act. When you lease a car that says they have to tell you how they're going to calculate your early termination penalty, and it has to be, like, clear and reasonable and stuff like that. And and there was one of the major finance companies was doing things when they were telling you how they were going to do it where, like, Instead of saying, like, let's just say that we're going to multiply x times 4, they would say we're going to multiply 2 over 2 times 2 times 2. You know, they were just basically, like, making the equation or the calculation intentionally much more difficult, so it was, like, to the point it was, like, mystifying. And you and me are not the only people who wouldn't get it. I had this paralegal a long time ago. His husband was getting his master's in statistics, and I'm like, can you figure this thing out? And he's like, he looked at it, and he looked at it, and he looked at it, was like, no. If
1: there is one simple-to-understand thing in all this, it's that all this Orwellian doublespeak in big-dollar contracts is so complicated because it needs to be complicated for it to work out for the lenders. Because lenders know you can't pay back a $200,000 mortgage by your next paycheck, so they need to craft contracts to reduce their risk in lending over a long time, which is where you get our old friend front-loaded loans. But here's the rub. If you're actually lucky enough to have a good mortgage, you can pay down. You being a responsible borrower who doesn't keep re indebting yourself doesn't make lenders any money. I mean, you're not a customer if you're not paying a bill, right? And this is why if you're a real, genuine, responsible borrower with even modest money and assets, you keep getting advertised at for things like, say it with me,
3: homeowners, refis. If you look at the financial industry, like, what, what am I going to sell you? Let's Here's a guy who's like satisfied with his house right now. He didn't want to buy it. And I mean, if he did sell his house and he had that money, you could buy a house identical to it right now. So you, your situation hasn't really changed any, but what's changed is your perception of your wealth has changed and your wealth on paper has changed because you got a bunch of equity. So if I'm going to make money off you in some way, the only way I can, one way I could do that would be to refinance you. It can get you a better rate. You get some of that equity out and do something with it. Maybe you build a swimming pool, right? Or pay off your credit card debt with it. Hey, real quick. ConsumerAffairs.com
1: last summer found that 36% of homeowners report credit card debts specifically due to general housing expenses. So doesn't that just make refis extra tempting? Now, David's not down on refis. He says there's often a reason to do them as a mortgage payer maybe to shorten the life of the loan or to move from an adjustable-rate mortgage to a fixed-rate mortgage, just know that when a deal for several thousand dollars can save you money, somebody else is making money on that deal and almost certainly at your expense. It's called nickel-and-diming, even if you're moving Sawbuck's and Benjamins instead of coins. And I suspect by now you're wondering where South Carolina fits into all of this. Well, where we usually do, unfortunately in the bottom half of states. A 2021 report from the credit bureau Experian found that South Carolina is one of only a few states where median mortgage debt is more than the median home value. I'm gonna say that again because that really reels me. The median mortgage debt in this state was higher than the median home value last time anybody checked. Now that's a statewide look, of course, and not something that happens to every homeowner. But it is another part of the answer as to why South Carolinians live with such unusually high amounts of debt per capita, even if they have the means enough to have options. Another Experian report found that the average mortgage rate here in South Carolina went up by almost 16% between 2017 and 2022. Not the most, but hardly the least. Meanwhile, phrases from South Carolina realtors like, Housing affordability conditions fade as mortgage rates push monthly payments higher started showing up a lot in 2022, as the housing market finally found its stasis after quite a rocket ride post-pandemic boom. My one memory from high school gym class that I remember fondly is the day I shut Kevin up with a half-court shot. It was also the moment I spent my one. You know, please, God, let me have this one. I'll never ask you again. Well, that was mine. Half-court shot, one throw, 60 people watching, all net.
4: Totally worth it. Still don't regret it. But that was the pinnacle of my basketball career. If you're not a high-profile individual, people aren't beating down your door to represent you. Jermaine
1: Johnson's basketball career peaked a little later than mine. He didn't quite make it to the NBA, but he did make it to the South Carolina House of Representatives. He also played professional basketball in Mexico, Europe, and South America following a pretty stellar run at the College of Charleston. Meaning Jermaine got real familiar real young with things like agents and contracts and promises and harsh realities.
4: Depending on your agent, sometimes your fees will be paid by the team itself, a separate fee for representing the athlete. So it's like the money won't come out of my check. It'll come out of the expenditure account of the actual team. But other times, if the team doesn't have the money like that or they say, you know what, we're going to make this part of this contract here, and they'll get the athlete to sign a contract where the fees actually come out of the athlete's money. I don't think there's anybody
1: who hasn't heard a story of a big-shot athlete who everybody used to love, who lost all of his money on women or drugs or gambling or bad investments. But how's that actually happen? You know, like, okay, some young buck falls for the lifestyle pitch, the vanity, the girls, the Diderot effect, but who steered this cowboy to the dark side? Or maybe who didn't steer him away from it? Wasn't somebody supposed to be looking out for this kid? Well, yeah, and that's often the problem.
4: My the person who I trusted the most was my AAU coach, and he was the one who had got me connected with the uh, initial agent that I had. You know that whole thing, and I always relied on them. I, I I just looked at them and said, I I you know everything was in the back of my mind. I was like, all right, they're gonna take care of it. They're gonna handle everything. They're gonna do what they're supposed to do, and I just relied on them one hundred percent. And uh you know to a, it, when it got to the, a day when I was like, hey man, like I don't have anything lined up. Like what's going on? And it was like, oh yeah, we're working on it. And then that, and me constantly asking, asking, asking. I ended up getting stuck somewhere, uh, trying to get some money to get back to uh, California after I left uh, College of Charleston. And then uh, they finally got me a plane ticket to go back. And then I was calling them and calling them and calling them. And then after all of a sudden, just one day, they just stopped answering. And they stopped answering my phone calls. They stopped answering my messages. And it, it was just like they just kind of fell off the, you know, the, the side of the earth. And it was like, man, like. I've relied on these people since, you know, when I graduated, it was like what, like um, March? It was like March of that year. And I had relied on them all the way up until November of that year. And then they just stopped answering the phone calls. And then I was like, well, what the heck? I was just kind of left out there on my own. You know, had I not relied on them so much, I would have been preparing for a plan B or a plan C or looking at other opportunities or opportunities that I could have. And I could would have been making my connections. But because I didn't know any better... I just put all my trust in them and I allowed them to drive the ship. Athletes aren't financial scholars, the
1: same way CPAs can't throw a tight slider off the edge of home plate. It's not what they grew up trying to do with their lives. So why would somebody who sacrificed everything to hone the perfect release know much about managing a retirement that lasts for 55 years? Oh yeah, athletes retire from their careers in their 20s and 30s. Most pro careers aren't so much careers as they are unfulfilled city council terms. So they're retired for a long time, and a lot of pros just don't have any idea what to do with that. And it's not like pro leagues have been a lot of help, historically speaking. If there's one pro sports entity that takes a lot of heat for its players not retiring well, it's the National Football League, which has been broadly criticized for not teaching its players to use their money wisely. Now, to be fair, that's being addressed. The NFL in recent years has put together what it calls its four-pillar approach to helping its athletes with their lives through personal and professional development and financial literacy. The league has lots of partnerships with financial firms and large banks and
5: credit card companies that talk to players about money. Snag. My philosophy is that a lot of those finance courses are meant to guide players on how to sell them later.
1: Carlos Diaz is a financial advisor based in Florida whose Rolodex is heavy on active and retired pro athletes and who practices fiduciary principles, meaning he's ethically bound to do what works financially for his clients, even at risk to his own profits. And he speaks often on the dangers facing athletes who sign pro contracts. And as you're about to learn, Carlos Diaz doesn't mince words.
5: They get them in, they culture them. I hate to use the word grooming because it's been used But um, that's exactly what it is. So if they teach the players how to be more accepting of a lot of these big company practices, then there's a lot less questions that come up. See? Carlos once met a
1: seventh-round draft pick who told him he'd been visited by someone from a major bank.
5: And what they ended up doing is they sold him on. Well, you need to get the checking account, and you definitely want to get a savings account at the same time. Then we're going to set you up with a credit card. Then we're gonna set you up with a brokerage account or you know, with an investment account. And then you're gonna do your loan through us. And it's like, wow, that, that's a lot of selling going on there.
1: And Carlos says he sees this starting with promising players in college
5: and even high school. When we have conversations with rookies or potential rookies that are coming in, they've already seen presentations from a lot of the big firms that are out there. They've already had conversations with individual advisors and they're hooked on the whole idea that it's a big company, they manage a lot of assets, they're there for me. And if for some reason something goes wrong, we can sue them because they're a big company. That's the opposite that you want. Big companies have a lot of large law firms that are there shielding them and that are settling your case potentially for one-tenth. Let me let you
1: in on a little something about me. My job, this job, the one you're hearing me do right now, is sacred because my work is governed by the covenant of public trust. If I break that, I don't deserve the privilege of your faith in my integrity. And by telling you that, I'm tipping my hand. Trust is the most important commodity I know because trust is the most important commodity I think we have. And anyone who violates it for their own gain is someone I will never miss when they die. So you might say I think trust is a pretty big deal because the reason it exists is because someone has something that someone else needs and is helpless to fight for on their own. Can
6: you see where I'm going with this? Guys know they've been browbeaten so much now that they need an agent. They've been browbeaten so much now that they need a financial advisor. They need someone to help them control their money, right? Guys are so afraid now of becoming a statistic that they are now trusting these guys wholeheartedly And I think the pendulum has swung the other way. Jamar
1: Nesbitt was a guard for the South Carolina Gamecocks back in the 90s. Oh, and, you know, he also was 11 years in the NFL, and he won a Super Bowl with the New Orleans Saints, but Carolina. Anyway, Jamar is now a business consultant living in Charlotte, the city where his NFL career began with the Panthers back in the day. And he's touching on something Jermaine Johnson and Carlos Diaz were getting at, how athletes of decades past used to be left to their own devices, and almost invariably screwed up their huge paychecks because they had no guidance to do otherwise. The pendulum swing Jamar is talking about is the growing over-reliance he sees among pro athletes who put all their faith in the integrity of professional advisors, who were really good at presenting a specific image to players.
6: Now we're just trusting people who claim to be this, who may work for such and such company, who have these you know, investment deals, who these sorts of things. The pendulum has swung so much now that you know now it's not the guy just spending all his money, it's the guy in poor investments. It's the you know, financial advisor who is embezzling and stealing the money.
1: A gentler way to say what I was trying to get at earlier about trust is that trust is sacred, and that's exactly what makes it the most exploitable virtue we have. There's a reason that the only one of Robert Greene's 48 laws of power that cannot be salvaged if broken is the one about reputation because loss of reputation is about the loss of faith and trust. And there's a reason Dante put Judas in the lowest level of hell with Lucifer eating his face. Trust is sacred. Betrayal is profane. However, enough stories about exploitation of athletes have appeared by now that something positive is developing. Young athletes signing with pro leagues or signing name, image, and likeness or NIL deals in college are bringing back up.
6: Now guys are employing teams where... Yes, I have a financial advisor, but I also have a lawyer or yes, I have an agent, but I have a fiduciary that's in a completely different organization. And so now there's checks and balances. So guys are becoming more intelligent. And I think this NIL thing for as bad as it is, you know, that people feel it is for college athletics. What is also doing is showing them or showing guys or preparing them two, three, four years earlier the benefits of understanding what money is and how to manage it, how to keep it, and then being able to research the people that you're going to employ to help you keep your money.
1: I can't give you any actual advice on how to manage your money. I mean, I could, but if I knew what I was talking about with investments and asset classes, I'd have money. What I can say is that if you do have assets, investments, a med school degree, or a possible NIL or pro league contract on the horizon, consider talking to more professional advisors than the ones who are presented to you when a big paycheck is waiting for you on the other side of that signature. I might also suggest you talking with a certified financial fiduciary, because those are the financial guys who are actually trying to get a Hippocratic Oath standardized for their profession. The only trouble, of course, is finding one, especially in South Carolina, where there's a grand total of four agencies listed among the roles of the National Association of Certified Financial Fiduciaries. On the next episode of Indebted, we come to the end. Our final episode, taking a look at the ways some of South Carolina's lawmakers, nonprofits, and even lenders are trying to address our state's complicated debt problems.
6: When we think about predatory lending, our history here in South Carolina has not been a good one. Um, And I just think that while we've tinkered around the edges on this issue, there was still much work left to do. What this legislation does is attempt to finish up some of that work.
1: Solutions, next time on Indebted. Indebted is a production of South Carolina Public Radio, made possible by contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Our producer for this series is A.T. Shire, executive producer Sean Birch. our fact checker is Keelan Bailey. I'd like to thank our guests, Dick McCoy, Jimmy Turner, Dave Maxfield, Jermaine Johnson, Carlos Diaz, and Jamar Nesbitt for clarifying some insanely complicated things. And of course, my special thanks to you, dear listener, for spending some of your time with us. If you want to know a lot more about the debt picture in South Carolina, you can find all episodes of this podcast at southcarolinapublicradio.org slash indebted, where you can listen, re-listen, and share as much as you like. You can also always subscribe to Indebted wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Morgan. Have a wonderful day. And remember, be good to the world.